there are just so many passages of the scriptures. We can look at Jesus' words to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek. Passages that evangelicals in the story that I tell explicitly reject. Yeah, yeah, you know what? That doesn't apply to us today. You cannot teach a boy to become a man by teaching him to turn the other cheek. No, 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 no. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I have an excellent guest for you today. She's Kristen Dumay, a professor at Calvin University and author of the book, Jesus and John Wayne, a history that traces how the evangelical movement bonded with the Republican Party and came to support Donald Trump. Or as her subtitle puts it, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. As a professor at a Christian college, Kristen is well positioned to understand and describe the evangelical right. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Kristen Dumay of Calvin University. Launching a campaign? Change Digital launches campaign websites in as little as 72 hours using our templates built with your goals in mind. Choose your template, submit website content, and we'll take care of the rest. You'll also get social and email templates that are easy to use and match your website's look and feel. For less than $1,800, launch your campaign with a professional digital presence starting on day one. Visit changedigital.us to learn more and get started. Kristen, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm a professor of history at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I grew up in a small town in Iowa, uh, Sioux Center, and uh, in a very conservative uh, family in a conservative community. And it was from that place that I went on to study graduate school, to graduate school to study American religion, and uh, really developed, I think, a, a more critical perspective on my own tradition and a real curiosity in terms of how religious values shape identity. Can you tell me a little bit about your family and the values that you grew up with? So I grew up in a very uh, distinctive subculture. It was uh, an area settled by Dutch immigrants originally. So a very kind of distinctive ethnic identity rooted in a very distinctive Christian tradition, the, the Dutch Reformed tradition, Kuyperian tradition, which will mean nothing to almost any of your listeners, but uh, things that we take very seriously. My dad is a theology professor and an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church. And uh, within that tradition, it's very important. Um, it has this kind of all of life view. So all of your life should reflect your faith commitments. And so Christian school was 
was a given. I went to Christian school all the way up through ninth grade when my family moved to Florida for a brief time. And that was my first sojourn into the public school system. And then I returned back to Iowa and ended up going to college right down the, the road in the Christian Reformed tradition where my dad taught. So uh, you're very distinctive, very intentional. All of life should reflect your faith. I didn't identify as an evangelical growing up, right? Even though I'm, I write about evangelicals, I was uh, different. We understood ourselves as set apart from ordinary American Christians. We considered ourselves smarter than evangelicals, <laughs> definitely more rooted in a, a religious tradition, a confessional tradition. It was only looking back that I realized just how much I had still been shaped by American evangelicalism because I grew up never listening to Top 40 on radio because that was sinful, I, I believed. And so I wanted to be um, you know, obedient. And I only listened to contemporary Christian music. We had one bookstore in my town, and it was a Christian bookstore. All of the books available, the products there were really filtered through this white conservative evangelicalism. And so looking back, I can see how I was shaped by this tradition, even though I never identified as an evangelical growing up. I feel some affinity to that because I, as a one of the few Jews in liberal Boulder, Colorado, we also had a kind of a family tradition of feeling set apart and very academic and very liberal labor history and, and leanings in that, in that direction. I think probably extremely different worldviews, but also sort of feeling a little different from the people around me. Tell me about your college experience. Yeah. Never occurred to me to apply to any school other than Dort. Uh, that's what we did in my family. And uh, I loved it. I, I had four years of really being immersed in a pretty small, intentional learning community. I had professors who challenged me. Really, every class was oriented around uh, what is a distinctively reformed approach to this subject matter, whether it's political science, whether it's sociology or art. Looking back, I can see that that really trained me to be a, a critical thinker. You know, that could be applied in a lot of different directions of always, you know, just not taking for granted what I was receiving. You know, if we read Kant, if we read uh, Hegel, we have to subject that to a, a particular critique of uh, coming from the Reformed tradition. And at a certain point, then you can also take those critical skills and apply those to the Reformed tradition. Right? You can apply those to what you're being given as as truth. And, and that certainly is kind of the, the turn that I took in my scholarship over time. You went to graduate school at, at University of Notre Dame, which also a religious school, a Catholic school, but very, very different, I assume, from a local Christian college. What was that transition like for you? Oh, it was it was it was great fun. I, you know, Notre Dame certainly uh, has a, a, a strong Catholic identity, but honestly, I went there to study with George Marston, who was the leading evangelical historian of evangelicalism, and so uh, I was not the only conservative Christian student who went to the history department to work with him. And so, in fact, that is where I first met real evangelicals, as far as I was concerned, because almost all of the guys I was was studying with and all of 
the, the other students who were going to study with uh, George at the time were male students. And they were coming uh, to Notre Dame from places like Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, Bob Jones University. And so I, you know, that's where I, I met, oh, this is, this is the people I'm reading about. And I, I realized, again, how I'm not from those spaces, but the places where I really could connect to them and to their experiences were, you know, popular culture. Like we had listened to the same music. We knew some of the same, you know, popular books. And, and so that was kind of my, my entree into their conversations. Tell me about George Marston. What was his politics uh, and his take on this history? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So he and I remain good friends today. We attend the same church and we see each other most weekends. He was uh, an explicitly Christian historian. So he was writing about the history of American religion, but he wasn't afraid to do so as as. Um, a kind of confessing Christian, and he would put that into his books. The first book to to really make a, a splash was Fundamentalism in American Culture that came out in 1980, right around the time uh, that Reagan was elected and that the media was all asking this question of who are these evangelicals and, and where did they come from and what do we do with them? And so his book really spoke to that moment by saying there's a longer history here. And yes, some of these people like Falwell um, look a little radical, uh, but you know, really, we can understand them within American culture, within American history, and that book was really important. And then he went on, you know, to write several more and to really shape the field as an evangelical writing about evangelicals and really taking them seriously. Now, my own work, in some ways, in is is a continuation of his scholarship, but in other ways, it, it is shifting things just a bit. I've had a lot of conversations with him and with other others about this, because I think one of the things that Jesus and John Wayne does differently is uh, it it recenters evangelicalism just a bit. So George was trained as an intellectual historian, and many historians of evangelicalism of his generation and the next generation were evangelicals themselves, were mostly men, uh, white men. And many of them had gone to seminary and had been trained, you know, in intellectual history and the history of theology. And so for for many of them, that was kind of the center of evangelicalism for them, this intellectual tradition, this theological tradition, the evangelicalism that you'd find at Fuller Seminary, at Wheaton College, you know, at Christianity Today. And when I started this project, I I saw just how much uh, theological uh, framework for evangelicalism didn't really get us very far in understanding the evangelicalism of the last half century or so. That there's a whole lot more to evangelicalism than just theological or doctrinal commitments. And that if you take a look at popular evangelicalism, it looks quite different, a lot less respectable, quote unquote, respectable. And you're going to find some much more extreme expressions, um, particularly around issues of race and issues of gender. Uh, There's a lot of misogyny, abuse, abuse of power, explicit racism or tacit approval of racism. And so one of the real problems I, I wrestled with in my own research was, what am I looking at here in this popular culture? Is, is this fringe? 
In fact, I started research on evangelical masculinity and militarism more than 15 years ago, and I ended up setting the project aside for a a few reasons, one of which I couldn't really answer that question because what I was looking at looked really extreme, even extremist, and it was honestly really disturbing to me. And um, and then I thought, if this is a fringe movement, you know, is it responsible for me as a practicing Christian to be shining this bright light on what may well be the darkest underbelly of American Christianity? And it seemed like a really noble move on my part. Uh, and then fast forward to 2016, I realized that so much of the rhetoric that I was hearing in evangelical spaces to justify their support for then-candidate Trump was exactly what I had been reading 15 years earlier, almost word for word. And, And that's when I realized, I don't think this is fringe. And I think we need to rethink the relationship between, you know, what is fringe and what is mainstream? And maybe those who long thought they were at the center of evangelicalism, you know, people like Russell Moore and the center of respectable evangelicalism, folks at Wheaton College and Fuller and at Christianity Today, maybe they aren't. Maybe they're the ones who are on the edges. And I think that's how my work relates in different ways to, to George's. We're looking at different facets of the movement and we're, we're trying to figure out what really is the center here. I mean, what what I think you trace is a lot of change, a lot of change over time in what people believe, in who people follow. In And, and it sounds like you feel like there's a real divergence between what you see as a true Christianity, perhaps, or better politics, and what has kind of gradually led by a series of different writers and thinkers and products and all kinds of popular culture to become very different. Can you trace a little bit of that change over time? I should say that I, I write as a historian. I uh, The book is a work of history, but uh, there's there's a bit of a clue in that subtitle that I'm also I'm writing a, a, with a, a critical framing here. Uh, so the, the <laughs> subtitle is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And that viewpoint uh, is inescapably part of the book. It, you can see it in every sentence, more or less. Right, yeah. right. And so that corrupted a faith part, right? That's, I, I really thought long and hard before going with that as the subtitle, not because, you know, those are fighting words, but because uh, it's not a historical claim, right? That is a theological claim. Uh, there's no such thing as corrupting a faith, you know, historically, unless you're saying that there's some norm that you're upholding, you're holding this faith up too. And and that's what I'm doing. I'm in that part of the subtitle and in the critical framing of the book, I'm really speaking to evangelicals on their own terms because evangelicals define themselves as Bible-believing Christians. So you go to the, the website of the National Association of Evangelicals and they define themselves as, we take the Bible seriously. And implicit in that is a claim that you other Christians, not so much, right? That's what we do. And then what I do in this book is I show how selective that biblical authority really is, that biblical literalism, that there are just so many passages of the scriptures. We can look at Jesus' words to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek. Passages that evangelicals in the story that I tell explicitly reject. Yeah, yeah, you know what? That doesn't apply 
to us today. You cannot teach a boy to become a man by teaching him to turn the other cheek. No, 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 no. Right? Just, just tossing him aside. You have the beatitudes. You have the the fruit of the spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self control. And yet, you see over and over again in uh, the this teaching on what it is to be a Christian man and what Christian men are called to do today in this moment, whatever the moment is, from the cold war up to the present. There's always a crisis, and that crisis demands militancy. That crisis demands aggression, ruthlessness even, right? And this is this is the story that I trace. And so what I'm also doing is showing how time and again, explicit teaching from the Bible is, is rejected or neglected, um, but often explicitly rejected. Even things like, you know, the traditional doctrine of the Trinity is, is just tossed aside by some of the proponents of complementarianism, particularly of a more radical view of masculine authority over women that is linked to um, the Godhead, to the relationship between the Father and the Son and the, the Holy Spirit. And so they're they're really messing with more than a, a millennium of Christian history in order to prop up their views of patriarchy. And, and so those are the things that I'm doing in this book is showing evangelicals themselves that the stories they tell themselves about themselves, we are Bible-believing Christians, we are the good guys, right? That that doesn't really hold up historically. And I think that's what's been so disruptive about this book. For the longest time, evangelicals have written their own histories, they've controlled their own narratives, and they've believed those histories. And what Jesus and John Wayne does is it says, there's a lot more to this story, let me show you. And that's been incredibly disruptive for many evangelicals. They seem increasingly uncomfortable with a gentle Jesus and wanting to move to a warrior Jesus. I can kind of see the appeal to a lot of men of sort of excusing behavior that doesn't require any restraint from you. Your wife ought to take care of your sexual needs. That's her duty. You get to be the boss if you make mistakes, they should be forgiven. Your anger makes sense. I can't even characterize all of it, but you could see why the theoretically embattled male, due to the societal changes that are moving us to equality over time, might seize upon a lot of the literature or the popular culture that says, no, 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 the 50s was the way it should be, or even way back from that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's not that hard to understand the appeal here uh, to conservative men. What's trickier, I think, is understanding why so many conservative women also embrace these ideals. I can say that this sort of a patriarchal system could not exist without a whole lot of buy-in from women. And that's why I have a whole chapter um, in the book on conservative women who embrace this patriarchal model and were proselytizers, you know, telling other women that this is, you know, to obey your husband is to obey God and really setting this up as the way to be a Christian woman, not just submitting to your husband, although that is absolutely central, but also being a, a, a wife and a mom, a stay-at-home mom of not entering the labor force, if at all possible. There's a whole list of, of additional kind of duties and obligations that 
that that are packaged together in this you know biblical womanhood ideal. You need to be beautiful. You need to be sexually alluring so that you can seduce your husband because he has so many uh, needs and desires, and those must be met within heterosexual marriage, and that is your responsibility. So if a husband goes astray and he has an affair or he abuses a child, clearly you failed to meet his needs, and so this is on you. So you have to keep up your appearance, and you have to be sweet, and you have to be a submissive, and you have to stroke his ego, and you have to do all of these things, and it seems rather distasteful. On the other hand, generations of women have been taught that if you want to be obedient, if you want to honor God, this is how you do it. I get that, right? You know, growing up too, I wanted, if you take your faith seriously, uh, you want to live faithfully and you you take what you're given as this is what that means to be an obedient Christian. Um, and and in, in certain conservative evangelical spaces, that was a very hierarchical uh, system that was to be obedient to God is to obey all of the authorities God has structured in your life. And for, for a woman in particular, that's a lot of different authorities that come above you. Really, when I was reading this as a historian, I had encountered some of this personally growing up, but, but again, not 100%. But reading it as a historian, it was actually quite shocking to read these words, to read it and just see how prevalent these teachings were. And honestly, as an American historian, to see just how authoritarian these teachings were and, and still are. Can you just cite a few of the cast of characters that have written really popular books or some of the touchstones of evangelicals that that kind of are signposts as they move more in this direction? Sure. I mean, I would, I'll start with James Dobson. Uh, you know, to me, it's, it's baffling to me that historians can write history of modern evangelicalism and, and give Dobson maybe a sentence. I think Dobson has to be really at the center of our understanding of evangelicalism today because he is at the center of popular evangelicalism. He was a child psychologist who uh, rose to prominence in the 1970s, first with the book Dare to Discipline, about how to discipline your kids. It wasn't just a, a book on child rearing. It was it was very politically framed because he was responding to the social disorder of the 1960s and thought what was missing was proper discipline. So you spank your kids, you know, use belts as necessary. And and this was important not just to, uh, you know, have a happy home life, but it was really the, the foundation of society. So James Dobson went on to just build this massive empire, uh, focus on the family. He he built that through his radio show and offering you know free advice predominantly to housewives, right? They're the ones who are at home listening to the radio day in, day out. And he also told evangelicals, taught them what they should think when it came to politics. And like, that's what's so important because a lot of historians of evangelicalism have wanted to really center the theology. You know, what is to be evangelicals to have these theological beliefs? And then, oh yes, let's look at the survey data. Wow, they're, you know, they're really Republican or they're really conservative on a whole slew of issues. But that's not really core, right? That's kind of, um, that's peripheral. And somebody like James Dobson does not allow us to separate uh, the theological, the cultural, and the political, because churches 
are sending out bulletin inserts, you know, week in, week out, pointing their um, members to James Dobson and then Dobson's radio shows. You have this direct mail that's going out to the listeners and then voting guides, right? This is what you should think about. And it's all one piece. So Dobson is key. But in the chapter where I talk about Dobson, I also talk about a guy named Bill Gothard that most people outside of evangelical circles probably have never heard of. Um, and this is this question again of what is fringe and what is mainstream. And Gothard is undeniably fringe. He's an extremist. He's he's the guy who's talking about this um, chain of command. And so you have God's authority over men and then men over women and then parents over children, employers over employees. And the entire world is structured by God-given authority structures. And it is absolute obedience that is demanded, required through this chain of command. So this is where you have a a wife who has to get her husband's permission, you know, when it comes to buying groceries, that he oversees her doing the dishes, that kind of thing. So again, pretty radical. But what I do in the book is show how much overlap in the end, there actually was between the uh, what James Dobson was teaching to public audiences and then what Gothard was doing more internally through these seminars that still reached millions of people, but more of this, this like insider, more extreme version. And to understand evangelicalism, you really have to understand how these interact, the more radical and the mainstream. So Dobson, Gothard, then moving up through somebody like Jerry Falwell uh, Sr., we get up to Jerry Falwell Jr., um, but also folks like John Eldridge, the author of the uh, phenomenal best-selling book, Wild at Heart, in 2001. Folks like Eric Metaxas come in later in the book, right? You know, this is kind of the, the universe of conservative white evangelicalism over time. And a lot of it was very foreign to me. It made me actually want to read some of those those books, even though they're so out of my tradition uh, for for things to read, but but like so much of my country is reading them, it seems very ignorant of me not to know about this. One of the things that I noted was how far back that relationship between politics and evangelicals goes. We know it's going on from the beginning of the of the country, but like starting with Eisenhower, right? You, you, you cite like pretty much in every election, what percentage of evangelicals are voting for the Republican and it's a growing number. Can you talk a little bit about like that nexus between politics and this movement? Yeah. And I should say, I could have gone back further. I kind of skipped the 1930s. The book gets started in the in the 40s, really. But there's an important chapter that's missing from the 30s. I, I was up against word count and wondering how much I could ask of my readers in a, in a popular trade book. But in the 1930s, you see a lot of conservative Protestants really opposing the New Deal. And so you've got this economic conservatism as well. Um, that That's part of the story. But yes, by the Eisenhower years, you see, you know, led by Billy Graham, who is leading this kind of neo-evangelicalism as evangelicals are trying to separate themselves from the more ridiculous fundamentalists. 
and really have an agenda to reassert their cultural authority. And Billy Graham's right at the heart of this and his celebrity really makes this happen. And it's it's Billy Graham that we see, you know, in and out of the Eisenhower White House, very active behind the scenes and very ambitious himself in terms of the political power that he could wield. So it, it really picks up there in the 1950s. And then through the 1960s and 70s, what we have to understand is not only is evangelicalism a kind of uh, moving into a more organized and increasingly partisan political um, direction, but you have the the partisan realignment taking place during this time as well. That's really important to appreciate because Billy Graham, as I say in the book, was a lifelong registered Democrat because he was a Southern white guy. <laughs> that's why that's what you do back in the fifties and sixties. And it isn't until you know in the uh, in the midst of the civil rights movement that we see the Southern strategy and we see this partisan realignment. And so, if you look at some of the the polling data from the the sixties and seventies. 70s, it's a little um, irregular because it really depends which candidate. So when you've got somebody like Jimmy Carter coming after the Watergate debacle, then you still have a lot of evangelicals saying, okay, this is what we need for, right? Here's a born again Sunday school teacher, and this is what the country needs. And then during the Carter presidency, there's this sense of betrayal. This is not what we meant. Wait, he's pro-ERA. He is, you're talking about these justice issues. He looks weak in terms of foreign policy. And then you see this turn. So by 1980, that's when this political realignment has taken place in terms of American politics and you know con- conservatives really moving into the Republican Party. And that is also when you see evangelicals move um, securely into the Republican Party. And both of these things happen hand in hand. And you see Republican politicians well aware and cons- campaign consultants, et cetera, well aware of this piece of their base and more and more making sure that they're learning the words, even if they don't, if, you know, if they don't believe them and playing a kind of, to me, a very dangerous game in getting closer and closer to this growing movement. Absolutely. So when, you know, you'll you'll commonly hear phrases today still about, you know, evangelicals being hijacked by the the Republican Party or conservatives hijacking the evangelical movement. And and I always push back against that. This is not a story of hijacking. This is a story of, you know, evangelicals themselves helping to make the Republican Party into what it is now, right? Right at at, at its foundations. Uh, Southern white evangelicals, yes. And then important evangelical figures like Jerry Falwell, like James Dobson, you know, keeping an eye on Republican politicians saying, you owe us, you owe us. And if you want our support in this next election, here's our list of demands. Let us see your party platform. I, I want to just ask you what, what is an evangelical? I'm sure you've been asked that a million times. What, but like, it's a term that only has associations to me. I don't have like, or I didn't have till I read this book, perhaps like a real clarity around who, who is and who isn't. Yeah. Uh, so the big question is who gets to answer that question? Who gets to define evangelical? Uh, and if you look uh, throughout history, you can see that the word evangelical itself has changed meaning 
over time. You know, so it could refer earlier in his American history to more revivalist tradition. And then in uh, the early 20th century, it had a much broader meaning. It is sometimes even just conflated with Protestant. And so you'll have many, you know, quote unquote liberals who would identify as evangelicals as well. It really kind of takes on its modern meaning in the 1940s when the National Association of Evangelicals comes together. And and they they literally say like, this word isn't really being used much. We're going to take it. (laughs) We're going to make it our own, again, to kind of set themselves off against the ridiculed, you know, combative fundamentalist preachers who in the wake of the Scopes trial, that wasn't the public face they wanted to put forward. So evangelical becomes this this kind of new movement um, and a rebranding effort. Now, evangelicals themselves, again, will go theological when you say, what is an evangelical? And they'll usually give you a four-part definition. So I want to put that out there before I say not quite. Um, That four-part definition is um, the authority of the scriptures, so biblicism, crucicentrism, the centrality of the cross of Christ, the atonement, um, conversionism, this born-again experience, and then activism or evangelism, so you're acting out of your faith. Now, I suggest that that's not um, very um, satisfactory. And here, taking the lens of race uh, and applying it to this question is really critical because the majority of Black Protestants in the United States could check off all those boxes, but the vast majority of Black Protestants do not identify as evangelical, right? Because it is clear to them that there's a whole lot more to this term, evangelical, than just this kind of theological rubric. So what I end up doing is defining evangelicalism in a large part as a consumer culture. So you participate in evangelicalism, and this gets a little autobiographical, right? You know, I can see that I didn't identify as one, like, no, it's not who I am. Uh, And I wasn't thinking theology, but boy, without me realizing it, I had been shaped and formed by this evangelical consumer culture. And so, you know, an evangelical is anybody, uh, one, one historian, Daniel Vaca, a historian of Christian publishing, suggests anybody who read a Christian book, we're going to count you. You know, for me, I'd, well, maybe a little higher bar, but it's not are you a real evangelical or not, but it's how deeply have you been immersed in this cultural evangelicalism. So along with consumer culture, I examine evangelicalism, define as too uh, lofty of a term, but I examine evangelicalism as a, a series of networks and alliances. And I think that's really important to understanding evangelicalism. Organizations like the Gospel Coalition, like these massive organizations that organize churches and educate pastors and organizations like the SBC, but also Lifeway Christian Books, right? Again, getting into the consumer culture. This is really the scaffolding behind evangelicalism. And it's when you look at these organizations and these distribution networks that you get a sense for who is in and who is out. What can you do to be pushed out of evangelicalism? Well, cross a line on gender, sexuality, right, LGBTQ, maybe on the existence of hell and eternal damnation, right? These are the boundaries. And we can see that those are the boundaries because Lifeway Christian Books isn't going to sell your books anymore. Christian publishers aren't going to give you contracts anymore. And these organizations, you're never going to be invited uh, to the main stage. You're going to be excluded, right? And so that's how I examine evangelicalism as a cultural and religious movement. There seems to be a, a really interesting 
nexus between capitalism and evangelicalism. Absolutely. In the the entrepreneurship of some of these leaders, in the productization of this that you're talking about, how do you see that relationship? And it also goes to sort of the beliefs about the economy and what which party you're choosing because of that. Yes, yes, uh, very much so. And evangelicals have um, always been entrepreneurial, right? Because they tend to not uh, identify as much with denominations. So if you look to the longer history of evangelicalism, you had a revivalist movement, you know, camp meetings and 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 this revivalist movement that spread through denominations but was never limited to denominations. And so, you know, any preacher could kind of get on a horse and go hold camp meetings and you could bring God's word and God's revival spirit. And so there's always been this sense of um, individualism. You can do it. God can empower you and that God can work through unlikely folks. And there's also been a sense that success is a sign of God's working through you. And so successful ministries, successful evangelists, right? That's that's God working through you. What happens then is, and you also have then more of an explicit support of free market capitalism that I alluded to earlier, coming out of even pre-Cold War era, but from the 1930s on embracing free market capitalism as the economic system aligned with the word of God. And socialism is anti-God, anti-biblical. And and so you have that strand as well. What you see all of this kind of morphing into then is, uh, I mean, you see it in the prosperity gospel that any success, especially financial success, is a sign that God has blessed you. Even though, you know, again, in scripture, there's a lot of passages about, you know, to follow Christ is to take up your cross, to suffer, you know, expect bad things to happen. So you have success being equated with God's will. And you have a whole lot of really selling evangelicalism, selling the gospel. But this is always framed not as a capitalist or economic interaction. It is always framed as join this ministry, right? Support the Lord's work over and over again. Churches, nonprofits, uh, individuals, right? Make a donation here to support this absolutely essential work of the Lord. Meanwhile, these are massive financial empires that are being built. And I think we have to look at it like that. So every time I could in Jesus and John Wayne, I made visible when money was changing hands. When I was an undergraduate, which is now so long ago, we had a guest speaker at the political union who was Jimmy Swaggart. And I only went to that thing like twice. Once when a friend of mine was debating a conservative and once for this, because it was an event on campus because he was, you know, he was a showman. And I went up and I sat close to the, to the dais or whatever you call it. And he's a big man with a, and he's kind of at the time, you know, kind of attractive. And I remember him making this bizarre comparison. He said, there were two countries back in the 1600s or 1700s, I don't know, Haiti and the United States. And he said, one of them made a pact with God and one of them made a pact with the devil. And Haiti's economic future is a result of that pact 
and so is the United States. And it didn't seem like it was a fair comparison in terms of the potential resources of that part of an island and and what we have over here. But it was part of that prosperity thing, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. God God will bless you. And, and, and God blesses those who obey. And uh, capitalism is in you know, the biblical economic system. But again, it's, it's also super convenient for leaders. It excuses their wealth, right? <laughs> it, it, it builds their wealth and then it excuses it. Yes. Yeah. Your title, Jesus and John Wayne, begs the question about, talk about John Wayne a little bit and talk about the different view of Jesus over time. Yeah. So if I could have found a way to title the book, Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, I, I would have. I just couldn't fit that in a title. It wasn't quite as catchy. Uh, but I went with John Wayne because it points to how it, early on when I started reading evangelical books on how to be a Christian man, this was in the early 2000s, I I was surprised that these you know quote unquote Bible believing Christians were writing entire books on how to be a Christian man with very few references to the Bible and a whole lot of references to Hollywood movies to movies like Braveheart to um, kind of mythical figures like real and historical but figures like Teddy Roosevelt and General Patton and MacArthur and William Wallace and just m- mythical cowboys and warriors and that struck me as really important and. One name that I kept see, seeing pop up was John Wayne. John Wayne, the icon of American manhood. We all know that what it is to be a Christian man is to look like John Wayne, right? It's a given. And I thought, really? So what does this mean? And you go back in time historically, you can see how John Wayne emerged as an icon of American manhood, specifically of conservative American manhood in uh, the Cold War era. He was this cowboy hero who in Westerns became all the rage in the early Cold War era. You know, good guy versus bad guy. You got to do what you got to do. And John Wayne um, rose to stardom during that time. But he also combined that cowboy heroism with um, heroism on the battlefield of World War II with Sands of Iwo Jima. Also, right, we have the Alamo and um, and significantly the Green Berets. And so he kind of brought this good guy with a gun white, heroic masculinity through his on-screen persona and kind of pulled together this cowboy, Western, heroic masculinity with American foreign policy, and we're always the good guys. And in almost all of his movies, he's the good guy who proves his his heroism by subduing non-white populations. I think that's also important to note. And he becomes, again, this kind of symbol of what by the 1960s, late 60s and early 70s is increasingly perceived by many Americans, especially progressives, as a kind of retrograde masculinity, as something we want to move away from, something we need to critique. We have uh, feminism, they're offering, uh, feminists are offering their critiques, you have the civil rights movement. And it's at this moment that, that Wayne both personally, like in real life, he's he's a conservative political activist, good friend of Ronald Reagan. He supports um, Barry Goldwater and Phyllis Schlafly and, and those folks. So he's, he's right in the thick of it politically. But even more significantly, he becomes this iconic symbol of the way things ought to be, the way things used to be, this rugged, aggressive masculinity that will use violence to bring order as necessary. And the fact that he became also eventually an icon of quote unquote Christian manhood, that to me was really significant. 
because he was not an unblemished character in his personal life either. <laughs> he was not. You can see a lot of what I write about John Wayne, right? You can see a lot of foreshadowing to where we're going to get in 2016. Yes. There was this mystery, at least among progressives, about why Donald Trump, who's also a big, white, successful uh jerk, um, (laughs) (laughs) was appealing to this large Christian base in the country. And you trace how he sort of consolidated that it didn't happen right away in the Republican primaries and and why it's not a mystery. Talk about that. Yeah, it didn't happen right away. Um, But that's um, here, too. I would push back against uh, many evangelicals who would say, see, we had no choice. You know, if it was Donald Trump against Hillary Clinton, what choice do we have? Right. Nobody worse than 20 other candidates. (laughs) Right. So you have to go back to that primary season. And as early as August 2015, you can see evangelicals start to coalesce around Trump, not evangelical leaders. It took evangelical leaders a few more months, um, but uh, the base. You can start to see. And and what I can say is if white evangelicals had not thrown their support behind Trump over the course of the primary season, he would not have been the candidate. What I observed watching this in real time was how initially there was a lack of trust. Can we trust this guy? Wasn't he recently a Democrat? What are his views on abortion? Right. There are there are these questions of who really is this guy as he made himself known on the campaign trail and on the stage during those primary debates, that's when you see more and more evangelicals dropping their support of somebody like Rubio, dropping their support of somebody even like Ted Cruz, because no one could hold a candle to Donald Trump in terms of his ruggedness, in terms of his um, willingness to uh, go against um, what was politically correct, to, in their words, say what needed to be said, do what needs to be done. And when I saw the language that they were using to defend their support for him, he was their ultimate fighting champion, right? Their words. He was going to protect Christianity. It was this kind of desperate times, call for desperate measures. And he is the warrior who's going to lead the charge, protect us, protect God, protect Christianity. Then it makes perfect sense because Trump was absolutely unresolved strained, unrestrained by traditional Christian virtue. We could talk fruit of the spirit. Like, don't worry about that with Donald Trump, which is why they could say he is the man that God has anointed for this particular time, precisely because he is not restrained by Christian virtue. Because his sort of aggressive masculinity and his various kind of corruptions, they already had a template for it, right? We have a long chapter about about all the scandals among these leaders that are kind of like his life, kind of like Trump's life, right? Yeah. That's when I knew I needed to write this book, actually. It was in the days after the Access Hollywood tape released when, you know, the the question of the hour was, what will evangelicals do? Surely, surely they cannot any longer support this man who, you know, we have on camera uh, bragging about sexually assaulting women. You know, come on, moral majority, family values, Christians, right? And, you know, a couple of them ever so briefly wavered within a week. They were all back supporting him 100% and all those who had been before. 
And that is when I realized we have seen this before. I'd spent a year and a half researching this topic back in the early 2000s. And then I set it aside, but I didn't stop paying attention. And I kept notes on a lot of these guys who had been promoting this aggressive Christian masculinity. And what I saw is one after another became embroiled in scandal, uh, abusive power or sexual abuse, uh, and either directly as perpetrators or indirectly supporting their friends who are perpetrators. And what I realized in those days after Access Hollywood tape uh, is, again, the language. I'd heard this language before that, you know, we need to kind of circle the wagons and we need to defend this Christian leader or this leader. We need to throw our support behind him. And it's kind of boys will be boys, you know, hey, God fills men with testosterone. And he does that, God does that so that men have the aggression that is absolutely necessary to protect faith, family, and nation. And sure, there's going to be some side effects, right? It's the whole package. And we need this aggression and we need this recklessness. And that is what this moment is calling for. And that's exactly what I had been reading in Christian sex manuals dating back to the 1960s. And that's the kind of language I had been hearing in countless cases of sexual abusers in evangelical churches, organizations, and institutions. So I covered that in the last chapter of the book. And let me say that my original draft of that last chapter was twice as long. We spent a lot of time cutting it down. It was just too much. But there, it, that really is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, watching that campaign and watching when Trump, how Trump would deal with an unruly protester at one of his rallies by really threatening violence and trying to act like the tough guy or like the debate where he brings Bill's accusers, which is just so, it's so uncomfortable and, and just signaling very strongly that like, I am not restrained. I am aggressively going to get in your face. I'm going to be disruptive. I'm not going to follow norms. I think that when your champion is willing to go above and beyond, I think we would probably feel that way in a different way on on the left about our champions. Like there's something heady about that, right? Yeah, I think it feels kind of good. It feels kind of empowering uh, to see somebody just so unrestrained. What I, I do want to add, though, is that not all white evangelicals rallied to Trump's side, right? There is um, part of the story that I write and part of the ongoing story is that there were not an insignificant number of evangelicals, including some evangelical leaders who said, wait a minute, this man is going against our values. How can you, you know, people like Beth Moore, come on, evangelicals, how can you support an abuser? Um, how, you know, people like Russell Moore as well, this is not the way of Christianity and you are betraying your faith to do this. So there were voices of resistance from within evangelicalism and there continue to be those voices, which is important to recognize. But then we also have to look at the power dynamics within evangelicalism. So those who are voices of protest on the local level, the people you've never even heard of speaking out in their local churches and their local Christian schools, many of these people are pressured into silence 
or they end up losing their jobs. You see somebody like Beth Moore, she ends up leaving the SBC, no longer publishing with LifeWay. You see Russell Moore, no longer in his position of authority within the SBC, right, on the outs. And so these are the dynamics that I try to demonstrate both in Jesus and John Wayne, and certainly the dynamics that I have continued to observe in the last couple of years. Have we moved to a time of where the dominant evangelical ideology is Christian nationalism? Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and you know, we, we can talk about what it means to be the dominant ideology. Um, I'm careful in the book, and I call it a dominant strand, you know, this kind of militant Jesus and John Wayne Christianity. Um, but continuing to observe dynamics within evangelicalism, what I would say is you can be an evangelical and not embrace Christian nationalism, certainly, particularly just a kind of a, an ordinary evangelical, not a leader, uh, not running an institution or organization. If you start speaking out against it, right? So you don't have to wholeheartedly embrace it, but if you start pushing back against it, that's when things are going to get difficult for you. And that's why I would say, yes, it is the dominant strand because life will become very difficult for you. If you're a principal of a Christian school and you start pushing back against Christian nationalism, I guarantee you're going to have a lot of angry parents and a lot of angry donors. These are the power dynamics. This is how this works. There are so many evangelicals who do not, who are not Christian nationalists, but there is a muzzling within white evangelicalism of those who seek to say, hey, wait, guys, this is not the way of Christ. And it's the same thing in the Republican Party right now. It's the you know, ostracism of dissent. Yes. Yeah. I recently talked to Ryan Bussey. I don't know if you know him. He wrote a book recently called Gunfight. He was a important salesman for a gun company. And he traces this long uh, movement within the gun industry to tie itself in with the Republican Party over time. And it's increasing radicalism that is gun related. It's coming along the same stream, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He and I have just recently been talking about how our our narratives are intertwined. Because what you see happening, obviously, with evangelicalism, you see that sidling up with the Republican Party, you know, really helping to form the Republican Party, shape its its platform, its its values, and its culture. But you also see within conservative evangelicalism the embrace of a gun culture this God and country faith. And also, you know, in the books on child rearing that I'm reading, dating back to the 1970s, guns are celebrated. First toy guns, you know, definitely, absolutely buy toy guns for your boys and teach them how to play and uh, uh, kind of enact this um, power and this violence. That's part of how a boy becomes a man. And then as soon as he's old enough, yeah, get him a BB gun and then get him a real gun. And this is kind of part of the, um, you know, how a boy becomes a man's story and part of what it is to be a man because God has ordained men to be protectors and providers. And the protector is really important. Going back to the Cold War era, it was important because they needed to be able to protect the nation, God's country, God's nation against uh, godless communism. See what's happening on the battlefields of Vietnam. Vietnam was this like critical moment for all of Americans, really, for American culture, American politics, but also for conservative white evangelicals. And they, with a few exceptions, really sided with the U.S. military and embraced and supported the U.S. military. And that 
relationship has continued to hold tight ever since. And part of that is also celebrating gun culture as uh, not just to be tolerated, but to be celebrated. This is what God has ordained for Christian men. If your book and Ryan's book are two threads of this, what what else should people be reading who might want to do a better job of understanding these changes on the right? Oh, yes. I would say Anthea Butler's uh, White Evangelical Racism and Robert P. Jones's uh, book on, on the centrality of race in uh, American Christianity, in white Christianity, both evangelicals and the uh, mainline. That, uh, so we can look at gender, uh, we can look at this kind of militarism, militancy, and how they are intertwined, but it is also absolutely a story of white evangelicalism and of resistance to the civil rights movement. I talked about how it's not just theology, it's also cultural identity and whiteness, white privilege, and frankly, white supremacy is also absolutely intertwined with this, the cultural identity and also therefore the political allegiances of conservative white evangelicals in a way that is too frequently masked by um, their rhetoric, right? No, God loves all people. We're colorblind, uh, you know, racial reconciliation. God loves everybody. But on any policy issue or when anybody is actually speaking out inside their communities, for actual kind of racial reckoning, the backlash is swift and often brutal. And so I think another thread that we absolutely have to keep right at the fore is that of race. And it, I mean, there's so many, but it seems like, um, you know, the gay rights movement must have been incredibly threatening. Currently, the transgender issues, I mean, that must just blow the minds of of people who are still busy resisting things that happened 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, let me just say uh, the title of uh, Robert Jones's book is White Too Long. So I did want to get that in there. But yeah, so sexuality and gender. And if you look at things like LGBTQ and transgender in particular, uh, first, you noting that there is a longer Christian tradition around issues of sexuality that would um, prescribe particular roles, certainly that would elevate heterosexual marriage as the ideal. So there is a longer tradition that historians ought to acknowledge and grapple with. And then there's also the issue of, you know, why in a particular moment, and you could look at Stonewall, you could look at in the case of if we want to throw abortion into this mix, Roe v. Wade. But we also have to place these kind of um, flashpoints in the context of how gender at a particular moment became so foundational and not just gender, but gender difference and not just gender difference, but really opposites. So if you read somebody like James Dobson, you know, God has structured society, human society in such a way that there are men and there are women and men and women are different in every cell of their bodies, he says, right? So biologically true, <laughs> you can make a case for that. But then what that means when he extrapolates it is they are opposites. So men lead, women submit. Men like sports, women don't. You know, men are the providers. Women are not. They are provided for. Men are the protectors. Women are the vulnerable ones, right? It's just this opposite. Men, whole different set of characteristics. And so you have this opposite. Now you get something like LGBTQ. And if all of human society is supposed to be built on this literal marriage of opposites, 
And that is the the foundation of the social order. And literally all hell breaks loose if you don't follow that. And then you you wed that to Christian nationalism, the idea that God has blessed America as God's chosen nation, but only if the country is obedient and it is up to evangelicals. God's true followers to make sure that the country is responding obediently as a nation to God because they are so special and so chosen. And if they don't, they are going to lose that status and they are going to lose God's blessing. You can see how this becomes then an issue of national significance, not just these are the values that we personally are going to live by, but no, these are the values that ought to shape the laws for all Americans. And, and this is where you can understand the, the history of LGBTQ and the opposition and the really extreme rhetoric that you encounter, and not just rhetoric, but also tactics on these particular issues. There's so much there. It's incredible. And it is such an important lens for progressives to view society through, which we often don't. If you were thinking with that mind, though, where a lot of people I talk to are trying to figure out how in this, the podcast is great battlefield, in this, the the evangelicals think it's a battle. Uh, The progressives think it's a battle right now. It's inevitably so. If you're trying to speak to the people who are persuadable about not going down the Trumpist road, the Christian nationalist road. How do you speak their language? What what advice do you have to people who are trying to communicate with soft evangelicals or Christians who have a different set of values than has been promoted in this circle over this time? Yeah, um, it's it's hard. Uh, because I, I think sometimes there's a tension between kind of truth telling and then what's the best strategy for um, uh, for reasoning with folks. Um, and uh, a strategy that is not very effective, as far as I can tell, is a very aggressive combative strategy because that absolutely reinforces the combativeness and the sense of embattlement on the other side that for generations has been absolutely critical to the mobilization, financial uh, donations, and getting people out to the to vote um, on the conservative evangelical uh, side of things, right? This kind of culture wars mentality. So if you hit hard, uh, that will only play into their hands. Now, I will also say that for many, many uh, evangelicals who hold to this um, kind of oppositional value system, it's really, really difficult to reach them. And certainly if you're coming from the other side, that's where you have to kind of support people who are on the inside, who maybe don't hold all of your beliefs, but are trying to work in their faith communities for maybe it's right now protecting uh, American democratic norms and institutions. Maybe it's something on, on voting rights. Maybe it's lower the stakes just a little bit, lower the temperature here, and let's see if we can find some common ground. Those are conversations that are difficult to have. They have to take place over usually a lot long time and, and through relationships. And they're frankly not as much fun as just coming out guns blazing, right? And telling everybody what they're getting wrong. But I think what's really critical here is looking for evangelicals, for white evangelicals who are inside these spaces, who are doing hard work, who are um, 
talking about still issues of racial justice, which has become immensely difficult just in the last five years, right? So much more difficult because of the backlash. Now it will be labeled CRT. You're going to be called a Marxist. I'm called a Marxist all the time and you're dead to them, right? So so finding the people who are in these spaces who are doing this really hard work and supporting them is actually really critical right now. You end the book sort of noting all these changes over time, not in a positive way, but saying, you know, maybe this could be undone because we see how it was done. Do you have optimism about that? Like, No, no, no I don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is total confession here. Um, that last sentence was not in the near final draft of the book. We were really, really late in the game. And it was, uh, it, this book was kind of rushed to get out in time for the 2020 election. So a pretty brutal deadline we were under. And my editor came to me. We, I thought we were pretty much good to go. And he said, uh, yeah, Kristen, this is a really depressing book. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know. Sorry about that. And he said, no, like you, you actually can't leave your readers in this place. You've got to give them something to hold on to. And he's not coming from like a, a Christian perspective of hope or anything. He's just like, no, you, you can't do this to your readers. <laughs> <laughs> so so I went back and I looked through the whole book and I was like, okay, what do I have here? And I wrote him back the next day. I was like, I, I'm sorry. I, I, this is this is a really bad story. And this is where I end up. And he said, okay, I respect that. And then like the next day, he's like, Kristen, could you just give me something, anything? <laughs> and so I went back again and I gave him that sentence. And Honestly, when I sent that email, I felt so ridiculous. I felt like it was so feeble. It was not enough. And at the same time, it is also true. And I, I, I believe in that sentence more now than when I, when I wrote it, because I have seen how evangelicals, how many well-intentioned evangelicals have been participating in this system and how showing them how this all came to be that things that they were simply taught as this is God's word and this is God-ordained gender roles and this is just the way things ought to be and this is what Christians do, when you can show them how it wasn't always this way and how things came to be, that is incredibly liberating for them to not necessarily change their views, but to ask, is this in fact what the Bible teaches? Is this in fact what it means to be a Christian? And I have seen that happen over and over again. And so I do think that history plays a critical role, maybe especially in white evangelical communities who have done so much under the cover of quote unquote tradition and tradition throughout all of time, God ordained. And when you can say, actually, it's a little more complicated. Let me show you how this happened. That does liberate people to say, is this who we actually are or who we actually want to be. So that's the hope that I have uh, a little bit more, frankly, than when I wrote that initially. I mean, I remember taking a history class about 19th century America, cult of domesticity. You know, one thing we do know is that there have been these big changes over time, these big waves, whether they're waves that are full of revivals or they're waves that are full of liberalism. It's not impossible to imagine that we're cresting a wave here and that some people will find a new way to move that group in a different direction. Do you think there's any worldly event that has the potential to, to make people say, oh, we've gone too far? Yeah. 
I, I was asking myself that question as I was writing. And the only thing I could envision, because global pandemic was not on my radar at that point, the event that could turn things either way was war, right? As a historian, just seeing how war, and I'm not talking about a war like being fought over in Afghanistan or over in Iraq, but a war that really comes home to the American people could potentially change things in dramatic ways. But as a historian, I can say it is more likely to further radicalize folks. So that's what I could come up with. And it wasn't actually a good solution, but it was hard for me to envision something that would be so completely disruptive in a way that would turn people from this. What I will say is uh, it's not quite the event that you're describing maybe, but a real change that has taken place in the last decade is social media. And what that means is evangelicals who grew up in very insular communities, right? For me, in C-Center, Iowa, my world was really quite small. And I didn't know how small it was, but I was absolutely sure that I had a handle on ultimate truth, right? And um, it is very hard these days for anybody to grow up, unless you are in a very kind of extreme corner of the Christian homeschool world, it is very difficult for any person to grow up isolated and not actually hear, you know what, there's another way to be a Christian. You know what, there's another way to interpret biblical passages on patriarchy and female submission. And right now, social media is a fascinating place. I'm very active there, and I'm kind of participant observer and watching how this goes down because what happens is um, individuals from these conservative communities, from organizations. Um, We have survivors speaking to abuse, sexual abuse, abuse of power, and they're no longer isolated when for generations, right, it had been pretty easy for uh, survivors or dissenters in these spaces to be squelched, to be silenced, to be pushed out, and then the institution just continues. Now, they tweet. And other people find them and they amplify their voices and they find each other. And there are organizations and there are networks that are now contesting the dominant power brokers in these communities. And it is fascinating to watch this play out because those who wield power in these spaces are utterly ill-equipped to deal with this pushback because their tactics don't work when it's all on display through social media. If there's something changing the dynamics, I would point to social media um, and forcing transparency on systems that have been designed to keep things hidden to you know, say, oh, that's gossip. You can't talk about anything bad. Um, to say, you owe deference, right? Remember, you submit to the authority of your leader. I am your leader, therefore you submit. These systems were crafted in this way and social media is blowing them open. I came out of talking to Ryan Bussey, wondering if there weren't seeds of civil war in everything. Do you feel like there are in your world that you're studying? As a historian, that's one of those claims that usually just you don't take that leap. That said, uh, I don't know, my, my outside field in graduate school is actually 20th century Germany with a focus on the 30s and 40s. And uh, so I, I've always had an awareness of these questions of how how did good people end up doing some really bad things? What is the nature of authoritarianism? 
And how does that actually function? So I'll just bracket that and now take on an equally or uh, uh, controversial topic, which is civil war. I, I don't know. If, if we had a sectional divide right now that you could draw a geographic boundary, oh, yeah, I think we'd be approaching that point. But we don't. Uh, this divide is running through communities. We don't even have red states and blue states. We have a few red states and blue states. We have red counties and blue counties or red rural areas and increasingly blue suburbs even. So um, we have families and churches where this divide runs right through. And still the feelings run so, so deep. I feel like the level of animosity and distrust are at incredible heights right now on both sides. The fact that we are all living side by side is um, makes it really hard for me to envision what some sort of civil war might look like, even though I feel like we're in one um, ideologically right now. There's so little like neutral territory here and so much distrust. I have a hard time imagining what actual war would look like. Seems pretty likely that we get a Republican Congress and maybe a Republican president in the next two elections. It's certainly more than 50% chance of that, in my view. What do you think that does to the evangelical movement, or is that too hard to predict? I, I think it makes them very comfortable. I think it makes them very comfortable. I think that, um, so in terms of change that I see within evangelicalism, I, I see this at an individual basis, you know, individuals saying this is not what I believe or individuals saying, I see now how I was complicit in this and I want no part of it. And individuals speaking out more broadly, institutions are, I'm not seeing much change at all. If I'm seeing change, it's becoming more radicalized. And so, uh, right, with with a Republican president, with re Republicans controlling Congress, I would imagine people feeling quite pleased with the political choices that they have made. And kind of escalating their demands. Uh, or, yeah, I, th I yeah. think continuing to move in that direction um, of aligning laws with their, uh, you know, faith commitments. And I, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about voting rights, frankly. And, uh, you know, looking at what's happening on uh, local levels in, in terms of state legislatures, and I'm deeply alarmed at that. And I have heard zero concern in evangelical spaces, I should say Republican evangelical spaces around these issues. So any dissenters I encounter are those who are, you know, never Trumpers from day one. <laughs> They're still speaking out. So I want to say there's nobody speaking out, but everybody kind of in that 81%, if you will, I, I see a lot of not even complacency, but quite pleased with where things are at. So what is this publishing this book done for you? career-wise, and where do you want to take yourself? Oh, that's such a good question. So I I was obsessed with this book. You know, I, I in the end, I was putting in 18-hour writing days to get this thing done. All I cared about was getting it right, you know, getting this book as, to say as powerfully as possible what I thought needed to be said. And I was really happy with how it ended up. In as much as I thought about the reception of the book, I thought a lot of people would hate me. I thought I might lose my job. Um, I was aware of that possibility. I teach at a Christian institution, and we have some very powerful conservative evangelical donors. We have buildings on campus named after the DeVosses and the Princes. And so I just thought, here, here goes. To my shock, 
I mean, sure, a lot of people are not happy with it. Um, to my shock, a, a huge number of evangelicals are huge supporters. I did not anticipate that. I also did not anticipate how it wasn't just the book that was going to be out there. It was me that was going to be pulled out into these spaces. And so the last year and a half, um, I, mean, I, I cannot count the number of interviews I've given, the number of conversations I've had. It's been fabulous. I've met such good people doing such incredible things. And at the same time, I, I have to confess that I am a little bit of an introvert. I my favorite thing to do is spend a day alone writing. And so it has changed uh, my life pretty dramatically, but I'm still at Calvin. As long as I'm still welcome here, I, I really enjoy working uh, as an explicitly Christian scholar. I don't know what is next for me. I really don't know. I, um, I, I really am focused more on what's next for the country right now. And as you were saying, I, I've got some pretty serious concerns. And what's next for me will probably connect in some ways to what's next for the country. Well, it's a, a great honor to talk to you today. I really recommend the book and learned a lot from it, Jesus and John Wayne. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have? Oh, oh, let's see. Uh, no, these are all really great questions. Just to reiterate the the surprising response from so many evangelicals themselves, including conservative white evangelical men. Are you getting it into the Christian bookstores. I mean, you talked about like the the boundaries of the movement and what they will read and not read. Is it getting no, in there no, at all? No, this was a grassroots movement. It was a lot of, uh, I mean, turns out if there is a white evangelical man who does not have his own podcast, it's possible I've not met him. Uh, <laughs> so this was, a, this was a grassroots effort that, uh, including many complementarian pastors who, um, are still holding on to their complementarianism, but not this militant, patriarchal, Christian nationalist version who see in this book, even though they they get, we, we, we can agree to disagree on some things, they understand that this is a book that they can use to be, to, to become more faithful complementarian Christians. And to me, that has been just incredible. And so, no, you will not find this book. Um, you cannot buy it through Lifeway Christian Books. So at least I haven't seen it there. I haven't checked lately. Christian bookstores have largely gone out of business. Um, but no, you would not be finding this in Christian bookstores uh, for the most part. But you don't need to anymore because everybody has access to Bookshop or Amazon. And it's in Barnes & Noble. And right, this is, again, how how that insular Christian culture and sub, that subculture no longer has the hold that it once did. And so my book has moved through Twitter and through Christian podcasting and has gone around the official gatekeepers. And it's really been pretty amazing to watch that happen. And I'm, I'm so grateful to literally tens of thousands of conservative white evangelicals who are out there every day on Facebook, in their churches, in their families saying, hey, guys. Let's read this book together. It's it's really amazing. Well, it it is amazing, and it's an it's an amazing story, and it's far from over. Yeah. Um, thank you for talking to me about it. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you want to watch this play out, you can follow me on Twitter at kkdumay kkdumez. And um, I do have a next book I'm working on, which is called Live, Laugh, Love. And it's a cultural history of white Christian womanhood. And it is analyzing this kind of popular white women's culture, things like inspirational fiction, HGTV, Hallmark movies, in terms of neoliberalism and post-feminism and white supremacy.
How far off do you think that one is? More than a year, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm, I'm going to get right back to writing it as soon as we sign off here. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That was Kristen Dumay. Kristen is at kristendumay.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.